Welcome to an all-new Industry Spotlight series on the Connection Tech Experience podcast. Rethinking Education, three ways that the CARES Act can support K-12. The Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act was passed by Congress and signed into law on March 27, 2020. This over $2 trillion economic relief package includes over $13 billion earmarked for K-12 schools across America. You might be asking yourself, how do I even begin to tackle leveraging this funding? I'm your host, Penny Conway, and on part one of today's three-part series, I sit down with Pam Olick, Connection's Vertical Alliance Manager for K-12, to talk first about building a return strategy, which means creating flexibility to transition from in-classroom to distance learning while minimizing disruption. Nearly 99% of our students and teachers have turned their homes into classrooms. Now more than ever, we're all looking for the tools to accomplish the goal of distance learning. HP is here to help. We offer customized bundles that include everything from laptops, monitors, accessories, and printers with flexible payment options and warranty services. Let us help you improve your students' outcomes while protecting them with the world's most secure PC and printers. Contact your Connection account manager today or learn more at www.connection.com HP. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Why don't we just start out before we kind of get into the meat of things, start out with just explaining who you are, what your background is, and what brings you to the podcast today. My name is Pam Olick, and I am a education strategist here for Connection. I am an educator, a certified project manager, and I formerly managed instructional technology programs for a very large district in Florida. My role here with Connection is really to uh, work with customers and kind of help them navigate the ways of implementing effective instructional technology solutions. Excellent. So we really do have an expert in the house when it comes to education, given your background and what you do here. I'm so excited to have you on here today. K through 12 couldn't possibly be a more relevant conversation amid what we're going on with the pandemic, with COVID-19, all of this stuff, and really want to maybe hop into our first segment today, which is all about building a return strategy as K-12 institutions. So how do we create flexibility to transition from that in-classroom experience to distance learning, all the while minimizing the disruption of that. I think coming you know, out of what we are in right now or going into what we are in, we saw a very quick response to remote learning, distance learning, getting students set up, having teachers deliver remote learning. But that is you know, not something that I think we've adapted to because we've had to, but not necessarily adapted to as our new normal. So from your perspective, is what we're doing right now from a distance learning perspective, is what we're doing effective and effective enough in the sense of if we were to return to a classroom and have a resurgence, would we be able to do what we did all over again or what should be improved? I know 
It's a very broad question, but we'll kind of start with that. You know, what were your thoughts around how quickly schools adapted to the distance learning that we're experiencing today? I think the school districts were taken by surprise with this, like all of us. And I think the majority of them did a great job putting out sort of a Band-Aid solution in order to get what they needed out to families as quickly as they could. And I think through that process, they uncovered a lot of challenges that they're going to have to look to prepare and fix going long term. Things like we know families and connectivity issues and the high percentage of students who actually don't have internet connection. Right. You know, that's a problem where a lot of those free trials have experienced Expired. So districts are going to struggle with, okay, now that those free offers have expired, what can they do to support these families with that? It's device implementations. You know, every district is different and we've seen a variety of the ways that they have implemented device solutions to families. Some districts have sort of Frankensteined a BYOD program along with a true one-to-one take it home. Other districts who were already one-to-one didn't allow those devices to be taken home. So now they're struggling with what else do they need in order to to support the take home of those devices. So I think moving forward, what most districts are going to be looking to do is really taking a look at what they've implemented already with the remote learning in a hurry and try to tweak it so that it's a fully functioning and sustainable long-term remote learning plan. Yeah, you know, it's a good point that you make about what access has been for students on devices. So, you know, across the board, you saw different schools adopt a one-to-one initiative, had the network infrastructure set up, others uh, not quite so. But then moving all of this to the home, being able to, I think it's E-rate, right, that helps the connectivity within the school walls. But then what happens outside of those walls in a parent's home or maybe kids are moving between different homes. How do you think parents have, I think we don't always talk about the parent side of this. You see all the memes on social media, but parents have really had to play the role of teacher. And, you know, what are some of the, if we were to see a second occurrence of this or a prolonged occurrence of this, how are parents able to equip students and what uh, resources are being put into parents' hands to make sure that they're actually enabling education at home as well? The district plans that I've seen from districts that have really excelled with putting together this remote learning plan have created really kind of a threefold communication and training and support program where they're not only looking at instructing the students on how to use the technology, how to access resources, but they're also communicating with teachers and providing sustainable ongoing professional development so that the teachers really kind of understand beyond just how to click, how to get into a platform, but it's how to really use it for effectiveness. And I've also seen that same kind of information going out towards families. You know, most help desks in most districts only support district devices, but they've had a kind of shift and turn those resources because the reality is, you know, parents, some parents struggle more with being able to help their kids with technology than others. So there has to be an embedded, a best practice for how those families can get support. But it's a great point you make is that it really is a community effort because the teachers are doing the best they can. And it's really up to the parents to become that teacher at home. But then we have to consider what about the families where the parents aren't working from home when they're actually going out to work or just don't have the ability to help the students with homework? How do we best support those students? Right. Do you think that I saw an article today that in the state of Florida might have been a specific county, but there was a survey going out to parents of students within the county, sort of as a a 
What are your thoughts and feelings on remote learning and how can you support remote learning? It asks the question of how do you feel about what's your comfort level of students returning to summer activities? What's your access to internet at home? What is the device? Do you or your child have access to devices? And I know that Florida was one of the more prevalent states where we saw some activity. What role do you think states should really be taking into account the parents sort of point of view or the parents' concern about a return and the parents' ability to support that? Do you see a lot of school districts taking that into account or do you foresee them sort of just following a more federal standard to return uh, to school as normal? Well, I think the states are always going to look towards federal guidance in terms of, you know, what is the best and most appropriate course of action. But I've also seen in some states where there are consortiums of superintendents and school leaders that are kind of working together to develop their own plan with what they feel uncomfortable. I think ultimately every school district is going to take into account what the parents are comfortable with, but ultimately they really have to abide by any kind of state regulations regarding time in schools. Right, right. And so getting into the real meaty part of this, we teased it in our intro about the CARES Act, and it's a big act to unpack. When you look at it, its entirety, I think it was 13.2 billion was dedicated to K through 12 education, 14 to higher education. And these are basically funds that could be available to states and districts within those states in order to create a readiness plan and build a strategy. So knowing what we've talked about from, you know, how ready were students, how ready were parents, how ready were schools, when when we look at building a plan to maybe go back to school that can easily flex to a remote situation, what would be sort of your top three things that a school district should be looking at to take advantage of in the CARES Act to leverage some funding or these micro grants to help them build that plan? So there's 12 allowable uses under the CARES Act. And for me, there's really three buckets or three common themes that districts should take out of that CARES Act. The first is really, you know, supporting students and families in needs, and that covers, you know, meal distribution, also covers continuing to provide mental health programs, because, you know, there are some students who are going to struggle a lot more with that. And, and some family school was the safe place. And now that they're at home all the time, they don't have that safe space. The second bucket is really about providing access and connectivity. And again, that refers back to devices, warranties, cases, whatever it is that the students need to actually be able to access. I know I was looking at some data the other day from NCES, and there's over 11 million students who don't have their own device to be able wow. to do their homework on. And over 9 million families don't have internet access for one reason or the other. So that second bucket is really designed to address those specific statistics. And then the third bucket is really supporting teachers and ensuring a continuity of education. So within that realm comes things like professional development and again, you know, communication, software, platforms, learning management systems, those kinds of things in order to pull it all together and make it work. 
it might sound like a silly question or one that you might not even have a, an entire answer to, but those numbers of 11 million students not having access to a device in this, and I know not every state is in a shutdown, but a vast majority of us are, and we don't know what the future holds. What are schools doing for those students, those students that don't have access, those students that don't have a device that can't get work done? What's been sort of the mitigating plan to get them through to the other side? Or have they dismissed school? What's going on in those states and with those kids that maybe in a district is up and running, but they don't have any access? Are they just not learning? In some areas, yes. There are some school districts that have chosen not to engage in a remote learning program because there's such a great need out there and that they understand that families, they can say that you're going to remote learning, but they understand that their statistics say that most of their families can engage that way. So there are some districts that have, again, they have said, no, we're not doing remote learning. And others have gone out and purchased Wi-Fi hotspots for their families in the thousands to make sure that their students can access. In Maine, the state of Maine just announced that they actually have secured hotspots, enough hotspots to ensure that 100% of all of their students can learn remotely. So we're seeing kind of everything, you know, from all ends of the gambit there. And that could realistically, and you know, you're not approving the grant, so I won't, we'll have that caveat here, but something like that, making a request or putting a plan together to have enough hotspots to serve 100% of your student base, that could be a good example of something to submit for one of these micro grants or submit for funding in order to make sure that your students are all learning. I mean, if I was approving grants, I would be a pretty compelling case if I've got 20% of my student body that right now has no ability to learn from home and no access right off the bat, getting them access through a grant would be sort of task number one for me. It all comes down really to a needs assessment and how well districts really understand the needs of their families. Mm. Is that something that schools are typically finding out that they're keeping track of? Is that a post or during pandemic sort of survey that they're doing? How do you think? Because that seems like, you know, if we're looking at the steps you need to take to build this plan, that seems to be one of, you know, if we were to say there's three pillars to it, one of the pillars is knowing what your demographic is. So what access or, or what level of information do you think schools have today on that information? Schools already have a lot of information in terms of which of their students are most at risk, you know, from low income families to students with disabilities to English language learners. The difference here with today's situation is those numbers are changing rapidly as the situation continues and we find more and more families out of job. We're going to see more homeless children and more students that really need more support than the districts may have realized before. So it's going to be really important coming out of this moving into the next school year for schools really to reflect and make sure that they've got a true understanding of what their families are dealing with right now. Yeah, that I, I get the chills a little bit when we talk about the the economic impact of everything that's going on. We've spent so much time talking about how we've converted to this distance learning or this remote work situation, depending on what role you're in. And then we look at more of the economics. And like you're saying, you know, the, you know, maybe 20% of your student body was in a low income situation. And on the other side of this, returning to school, you could see an uptick in 10 to 20% based on what's happened. So analyzing the demographic of your students and, you know, income level at risk student, I think at risk is a great way to put it and figuring out what 
students in those situations need in terms of access? Who has access? How do we get them access? What would you say would be sort of the third thing if we were looking at equipping and strategizing for this return to school, potential distance learning, you know, back and forth? What would sort of your third piece of advice be there? I would say for districts to ensure that they've got a rigorous professional development plan that supports teachers continuously throughout the year with helping them, again, move beyond just how software works and helping them understand how they can create effective blended learning environments where students all have equal opportunities to succeed. Excellent. When thinking about the school year, 2020, 2021, I tried to say that on a high ed podcast the other day and I got myself all tripped up. (laughs) 2020, 2021. But looking at this school year, do you anticipate that it would be a full return to school? Obviously, every state is different. Everyone's been having the work from home conversation. What is the new normal for business look like? What do you anticipate the new normal for education being like in terms of student interaction in a classroom versus out of classroom? Is there potential that some districts might have looking at the other side of the spectrum, maybe the areas that are less at risk, more affluent or more larger counties, things like that. Is there a potential to have a hybrid schooling environment in some areas post COVID-19? There are. We've heard a lot of different things that school districts are considering right now. You know, some of them are to continue with remote learning kind of status quo, but clearly tweaking and learning from what they've already rolled out and improving it. I know that some districts are considering a hybrid environment where they have some remote learning and they also have some online learning. They may alternate days where certain student groups of students come in on different altering days. So that's really going to require, even though it won't be a full remote learning program, it's going to require a robust learning environment just like we have now for remote learning. Other districts are considering bringing everybody into school, but looking at how they use the space inside of the school and maybe breaking them up. Mm. So all of these environments or kind of situations really are going to require districts to look at the technology they have, not just for students at home, but for technology in the classroom as well to be able to stream and record teaching lessons. I actually, I'm so curious to see what everything looks like after this. And I, I think the, the way that we learn, the way that students learn, I think we're going to see more doors. Obviously, there will be challenges, but also more doors opened up to be maybe discover new ways of learning, new ways of teaching and see that it doesn't just like you don't have to do business in a class, business within the walls of an office. Not all learning has to happen um, in the walls of a school or a classroom. And that is um, super exciting, especially when you think about um, investments that are made in new buildings, which are awesome. Um, but if you have maybe a building that needs to be renovated really badly, a hybrid environment could actually really help them, you know, in the planning and reimagining and thinking of what that new learning environment looks like. And you must get sort of super excited when you think about, you know, with all of your history in the public education space, like what could this be versus what it's been for so many years must be really exciting for you to think about. Absolutely. It's instructional technologies like full circle, right? It's unfortunate that it comes at this time, but, you know, the conversations surrounding connectivity and students at home is nothing new. I know in some of the research I've done in the past for projects, I think 60% of teachers assign online homework at home 
even though they know that not all of their kids can actually complete that homework. So it's always that question, that issue about kids not being able to do work at home has always been there. It's been a topic of discussion at every conference I've been to for 10 years. And it's exciting to see that now it's come full circle. It can't be ignored. And that hopefully we're going to find a solution to that problem. You know, so it's a pretty exciting opportunity too to know that districts may be looking to implement programs like blended learning that really gives every student a chance to learn the way they need to learn. So it's kind of equity and opportunity for everybody. So it's it's a dream come true for an instructional technologist. <laughs> well, I think you said it you said it best there. I, I, we covered a lot in this segment. I think that a couple of the hot button, hot questions, just in terms of how quickly we reacted, what's coming next, what could the new normal of education look like, and really focusing on how schools today and districts and states can take advantage of the CARES Act funding and really look at, you know, what is the connectivity of all of your students today? Who has a device and who has a connection? And how do we actually bridge that gap to make sure it goes to 100%? Evaluating the at-risk population of your students initially and ongoing as we see the further economic impact of COVID-19. And then thirdly, making sure, which we're going to cover in another segment, making sure that your professional development is hitting on all the points that your teachers, students, and parents need to navigate through this new normal. So Pam, I thank you so much for joining us for our first K-12 and CARES Act segment and look forward to having you back to touch on our next topics. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.